are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam Charlie O. Double Double Toil and Trouble. <laughs> That's what we got. This week we're dipping into the cauldron, right? Why don't we tell people what we're discussing today? Yeah, this is Miles Davis. Bitches brew. Bitches brew indeed. That's um, what they do. So if our voices sound a little different, these dulcet tones right. are probably the product of podcasting closely together, but it's kind of <laughs> befitting of late night jazz DJs, so I think it's kind of cool, you know? That's right. We're bringing you a nasal podcast today. That's right. That's right. But um, with regards to Bitches Brew, um, Miles Davis did once say, I'll play it first and tell you what it is later, which I thought was <laughs> as perfect a summation of this particular album as yeah. there could possibly be. Once so, he figured it out. And once he figured if he ever did, yeah, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, this week we're tackling a must-own album that's arguably responsible for having invented jazz fusion. Yeah. Miles Davis at this time was, you know, beginning to hang out with Betty Davis, who eventually became his second wife. And she was introducing him to a lot of new stuff. And you can sure as hell hear it, can't you? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you, can. <laughs> you know, see, he was it's dipping like, into Hendrix, Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown. It, it defies it defies description. You gotta you gotta hear it. This is one you gotta hear. It does. It absolutely does. And you know, I think for for people like us, you know, I'll speak for myself, but very much an amateur when it comes to the jazz world and the jazz scene. I would imagine you'd put yourself in a similar category. Uh, absolutely. Okay. All right. <laughs> but what I did know, you know, he's he's known for having transformed tremendously from his, you know, 60s into the 70s. You know, he's known mostly for Kind of Blue, Sketches of Spain, you know, both which had already cemented him as a jazz legend among traditionalists. Um so it's easy to forget how revolutionary this album actually was. Because though it sold well and was adored by fans, it was equally reviled by jazz traditionalists. Yes, yeah, yeah, his um, his bass. You, you can really find some uh, some scathing reviews and some scathing takes on this particular album. Right. It's sort of the Dylan Gone Electric for an even more idiosyncratic oh, and yeah. nerdy fan base. Yeah, yeah there's a... There's a really scary uh, flashback. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an analog we don't even <laughs> care to dip into. But, you know, it was forward-thinking in a lot of ways. I think even the way the album was recorded and put together, you know, owed a lot to the technology of the time. It was spliced together in a relatively new way that was mostly used in film. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's... It's just emblematic of an album that was really ahead of its it time. It was bleeding on the cutting edge, absolutely. It was. It was. <laughs> So, so we're back with uh, Mati Klarbein, right? Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if I butchered that either the last time we spoke of him. Maddie. Yes, Maddie. Let's Maddie. go with that. So Miles handpicks Klarbein, who you know, famously handled art for a previous episode focused Abraxas by Santana and the aforementioned Jimi Hendrix. So, you know, again, he's given the, the, uh, the direction, here's the music. Do whatever you're going to do. I trust you implicitly. Was this sort of implied sense of trust in the vision of an artist something a bit more common back then? Or do you think Miles was so taken with his previous work that he just trusted him? That's an interesting thought because I think there is that art begets art kind of thing. There was just this colony of people who were more than just performers or more than just what their 
you know, what their what their primary output was. Like, yeah. You know, like Miles Davis, yeah, he was a musician, uh, but he was also uh, an artist, you know, in a oh, in a in a pure sense. And I think Clarvine was the same way. You know, these were just people who uh, you know, a song will give you an idea for a painting and a painting give you an idea for a song. That sort of thing was just where they lived. And and I liked his son's description of how his father uh, prepared this painting. He just yeah. listened to the listened to the album over and over, walking around listening to it, and, and then finally started to, uh, you know, put the brush to the canvas. Yeah, and essentially, you know, his son does describe Clarvine's methods as, you know, his studio was essentially a music store. Yeah. You know, yeah. though though he landed somewhere in an Afro-Cuban sort of lens, I mean, he was really pulling influence from literally the world in its entirety, which I think is yeah, really Yeah, cool. he was tapping into the rhythms of the universe, I think, and that's kind of reflected in his own artwork. And it's certainly reflected in the music. Um, so, yeah. altogether, this was really a bold move because the quote-unquote unjazziness of it all really helped fuel the fire of those detractors, you know, but it all starts with the title, in my opinion. So let's talk <laughs> Bitches Brew. Okay. Um, I really liked, you know, a lot of your research because I'd never given this album, well, the album itself, and certainly not the title, much time, or therefore much thought. Um, it's a dense and challenging listen for a jazz amateur like me, but there's a lot to love about it, and it starts with the name. So the lack of apostrophe yeah. has never occurred to me <laughs> until this this very moment, and it really changes everything about it. What does it strike you when you first see the title? Where where does it take you? Well, I I do recall vaguely when this first came out, and you know, uh, bitches brew just sort of had ah eh, for me not knowing about the album itself, it just sort of had a drug connotation. It was it was just sort of something that you know uh, you you take this and and I saw the album and it looked a little bit trippy and I thought okay so this is you know just another in a long line of psychedelic images and in, in music and, and music art so that's the way I saw it. it it wasn't until we decided to take this one on that I got the aha moment that no that's okay. fascinating yeah it, it's not. It's 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 not a noun. It's a verb. Yeah, I this always is, read it as a noun. This you is know? what bitches do. Bitches <laughs> brew. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because I've honestly always associated it more with Davis's working title, which was Witches Brew. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, just... And to me, that conjures you know much like I said in the intro, Shakespeare's Wayward Sisters from Macbeth, mm -hmm. the opening scene, but. I really like to think of the band members as the bitches themselves. You planted that seed, and I kind of ran with that in my mind. Because I think the cooking and recipe analogy really lends itself well to songwriting. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, especially this album. Because especially a, this Because album. it's in there. Yeah. Whatever ingredient you're looking for, it's in there. Well, and very disparate uh, ingredients from uh, <laughs> disparate places and influences. So I just think it's really neat. Um but it's time for me to mispronounce something else here. Uh, is it Mish Technique? Mish Technique? That's, that's technique? Yeah, yeah okay. that's, that sounds pretty German. That's All pretty right. good. All right, I'll, I'll, go take, I'll tell you. So that sounds like quite the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're, you know, it sounds like you might be a little more familiar with the process than I am, but I had no idea how a painting like this, however beautiful it could be, could possibly take this long. So the result is incredible, but... Is there anything you can tell me about the process? The egg tempura, well, things like this. Not really. No, I'm not. Uh, don't have enough um, 
uh, you know, art chops myself, but I do know that, you know, some of the old masters used this, this, you know, the, the egg protein mm-hmm. uh, was a way to just get vibrancy in your color that uh, had, that there was no other way to get back in the old days. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there are some very famous works uh, that were done, you know, with this technique and it, and it was painfully slow because, uh, because, because you gotta break a lot of eggs to make yeah yeah to make a painting. Well, and again, it just that just you know obviously you know he didn't create this technique, but even the use of egg and the idea of the egg as a symbol and as an emblem of this album, like there was birth in this album. Yeah, you know, he was okay. really really bringing something nice new into back, the world. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but speaking of tiebacks, you know, we talked about Santana's Abraxas at length. And the Nigerian charm dancer that we first met when discussing that album cover reappears here. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at her right now. Uh, she's got white makeup this time, uh, but it's definitely her. It's the very her. same person. Certainly her. So, you know, it got me thinking, this has to be the only example of a character reappearing on two separate artists' album covers. You know, I did some digging. Obviously, there's a lot of you know, pre-existing characters that were used on different bands' albums. You know, Queen has used covers, or has had covers that have Marvel co- Marvel figures from the comics, and lots of people have done things like that, but an artist doing it is just a wild move for I, me. I don't know. I, I, it would seem to me, and I have no background at all, uh, just uh, two cents in an opinion, and, yeah. and that is that, I would think it's probably been done many times, and we've never noticed it. It's sort of that little, you know, this is my little trademark. Yeah, I'm going to put this little Bugs Bunny over here in the corner, and and, and it'll appear on every album I got. But if you said, okay, uh, show me one, I can't. I know. So I I can't say that you're wrong. I just just would say I'd really be surprised if, if this was the first time that we had a recurring character from you know, carried over from one album cover to another. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, and it was quite an interesting time. I would always, you know, like to know as well. And if, if it did, I'm sure it was intentional. Very oh, intentional. 100%. Because of the, the role that this uh, uh, this image takes in the album cover. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'd love a chance to ask, what's that about? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, to, 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 uh, never to happen, but... I do think that, you know, having a figure like that so central really, it pulls your eye. Yeah. It certainly pulls your eye. And this this album cover is brilliant. I'm not sure where it stands for me next to Abraxas, not that they're sister albums, but <laughs> I would like to know what Carlos and Miles thought of each other's uh, albums, if not just the artwork. Yeah, so it would be yeah, interesting to yeah, know. That would be. But considering, you know, how adventurous Miles was really becoming, and, you know, that fusing of jazz and rock and psychedelia and funk you know it wasn't done before right you know it really wasn't so i think he'd be pretty adventurous and santana wouldn't be too far an adventure but you know i have also no idea how this cover ever could have been interpreted as racially charged i know i wasn't um around in the early 70s but it feels more like a celebration of culture and that's where part of the racial (sighs) charge comes from because You know, America in the 1950s and 1960s was not a happy place no. when, it, when it came to race. I was looking back, 63, the Birmingham church um, bombing and 64, Mississippi burning murders and uh, Malcolm X in 65 and MLK in 68. 
And then, you know, at the same time, we, we've got the, the country trying to right the ship a little bit with the Civil Rights Act and 64, Voting Rights Act, 65. Here's your history lesson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether, you, whether you like it or not. Fair Housing Act, 68. I mean, the point being that, that, you know, on the one hand, we had a lot of hatred being exhibited in yeah. our bad behavior. And there were these efforts to correct it. And, and there were a lot of people who weren't happy with you know, with Civil Rights Act. Or yeah. The Voting oh, Rights yeah. Act. Oh, 100%. And so all you had to do was show a black person in a positive light, and you got more enemies than you're ever going to be able to count. It's true. Unapologetically black and adventurous, and especially in a genre steeped in tradition. Yeah. You know, he dared move away from it in much the same way Coltrane did. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Thanks for uh, for framing that a little <laughs> better for, uh, for the young in here. But... Davis was obviously thrilled with the painting. That's no surprise. Yeah. Um, you know, again, so so forward thinking, which is sort of verboten in the jazz world, but it really paid off. I think the font is incredible. Um, and, you know, it was a message to the world that jazz could hold its own amongst any other genre yeah. in terms of cool and in terms of capturing the zeitgeist. Yeah, and I'm proud of you for noticing fonts, paying attention to fonts. Hey, of course. I, I love fonts, man, <laughs> especially the uh, the gothic ones. That's more my vibe. So uh, I just wish Davis would have been able to find this original artwork. It's a yeah. bummer he didn't end up with it hanging on his wall. And everyone else loved it, too. That's so right. What more do you need to know? Bitches brew. Bitches brew. Drink up. See you, See you next, next time. Double-double toil and trouble. <laughs> That's what we got. This week we're dipping into the cauldron, right? Why don't we tell people what we're discussing today? Yeah, this is Miles Davis, Bitches Brew. Bitches Brew indeed. That's um, what they do. So if our voices sound a little different, these dulcet tones That's are right. probably the product of podcasting closely together, but it's kind of <laughs> befitting of late night jazz DJs, so I think it's kind of cool. You know, That's right. We're bringing you a nasal podcast today. That's right. That's right. But um, with regards to Bitches Brew... Um, Miles Davis did once say, I'll play it first and tell you what it is later, which I thought was <laughs> as perfect a summation of this particular album as yeah. there could possibly be. Once so, he figured it out. Once he figured, if he ever did, yeah, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, this week we're tackling a must-own album that's arguably responsible for having invented jazz fusion. Yeah. Miles Davis at this time was, you know, beginning to hang out with Betty Davis, who eventually became his second wife. And she was introducing him to a lot of new stuff. And you can sure as hell hear it, can't you? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you, can. <laughs> you know, see, he was it's dipping like, into Hendrix, Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown. It, it defies it defies description. You got you to gotta hear it. This is one you got to hear. It does. It absolutely does. And, you know, I think for, for people like us, and, you know, I'll speak for myself, but very much an amateur when it comes to the jazz world and the jazz scene. I would imagine you'd put yourself in a similar category. Uh, absolutely. Okay. All right. <laughs> but what I did know, you know, he's he's known for having transformed tremendously from his, you know, 60s into the 70s. You know, he's known mostly for Kind of Blues, Sketches of Spain, you know, both which had already cemented him as a jazz legend among traditionalists. Um so it's easy to forget how revolutionary this album actually was. Because though it sold well and was adored by fans, it was equally reviled by jazz traditionalists. Yes, yeah, yeah, his um, his bass. You, you can really find some, uh, some scathing reviews and some scathing takes on this particular album. Right. It's sort of the Dylan Gone Electric. 
for an even more idiosyncratic oh, and yeah. nerdy fan base. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a really scary uh, flashback. <sighs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an analog we don't even <laughs> care to dip into. But, you know, it was forward-thinking in a lot of ways. I think even the way the album was recorded and put together, you know, owed a lot to the technology of the time. It was spliced together in a relatively new way that was mostly used in film. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's... It's just emblematic of an album that was really ahead of its it time. It was bleeding on the cutting edge, absolutely. It was. <laughs> it was. So so we're back with uh, Mati Klarbine, right? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if I butchered that either the last time we spoke of him. Maddie. Yes, Maddie. Let's Maddie. go with that. So Miles handpicks Klarbine, who you know famously handled art for a previous episode focused Abraxas by Santana and the aforementioned Jimi Hendrix. So... You know, again, he's given the the uh, the direction. Here's the music. Do whatever you're going to do. I trust you implicitly. Do, was this sort of implied sense of trust in the vision of an artist something a bit more common back then, or do you think Miles was so taken with his previous work yeah, that he just trusted I, I him? That's an interesting thought because I think there is that art begets art kind of thing. There was just this colony of people who were more than just performers or more than just what their you know what their what their primary output was like, yeah you know like miles davis yeah he was a musician uh but he was also uh, an artist you know in a oh in a, in a pure sense and i think clarvine was the same way you know these were just people who uh you know a song will give you an idea for a painting and a painting give you an idea for a song that sort of thing was just where they lived and and i liked his son's description of how his father uh, prepared this painting. He just yeah. listened to the listened to the album over and over, walking around listening to it, and and then finally started to, uh, you know, put the brush to the canvas. Yeah, and essentially, you know, his son does describe Clarvine's methods as, you know, his studio was essentially a music store. Yeah, you know, yeah. though though yeah. he landed somewhere in an Afro-Cuban sort of lens. I mean, he was really pulling influence from. Literally the world in its entirety, which I think is yeah, really yeah. Cool. He was tapping into the rhythms of the universe, I think, and that's kind of reflected in his own artwork. And it's certainly reflected in the music. Um, so yeah. altogether, this was really a bold move because the quote unquote unjazziness of it all really helped fuel the fire fire of those detractors, you know. But it all starts with the title, in my opinion. So let's talk. <laughs> Bitches Brew. Okay. Um, I really liked, you know, a lot of your research because I'd never given this album, well, the album itself, and certainly not the title, much time, or therefore much thought. Um, it's a dense and challenging listen for a jazz amateur like me, but there's a lot to love about it, and it starts with the name. So the lack of apostrophe yeah. has never occurred to me <laughs> until this this very moment, and it really changes everything about it. What does it strike you when you first see the title? Where, where does it take you? Well, I, I do recall vaguely when this first came out. And, you know, uh, Bitches Brew just sort of had, eh, for me, not knowing about the album itself, it just sort of had a drug connotation. It Interesting. Was, it was just sort of something that, you know, uh, you, you take this and, and I saw the album and it looked a little bit trippy and I thought, okay, so this is, you know, just another in a long line of psychedelic images and in, in music and, and music art. So that's the way I saw it. it. It wasn't until we decided to take this one on that I got the aha moment that, no. That's okay. fascinating. Yeah, it, it's not 
It's 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 not a noun. It's a verb. Yeah, I this always is, read it as a noun. This you is know? what bitches do. Bitches <laughs> brew. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because I've honestly always associated it more with Davis's working title, which was Witches Brew. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, just... And to me, that conjures you know much like I said in the intro, Shakespeare's Wayward Sisters from Macbeth, mm-hmm. the opening scene, but. I really like to think of the band members as the bitches themselves. You planted that seed, and I kind of <laughs> ran with that in my mind because I think the cooking and recipe analogy really lends itself well to songwriting. You know, what I yeah, mean? And especially this album. Because especially this because album. it's in there. Yeah, whatever ingredient you're looking for, it's in there. Well, and very disparate uh, ingredients from <laughs> uh, disparate places and influences. So I just think it's really neat. Um, but it's time for me to mispronounce something else here. Uh, is it mish technique? Mish technique? That's, that's yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that sounds pretty German. That's All pretty right. good. All right, I'll, go take that. I'll take it. I'll So that sounds like quite the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're, you know, it sounds like you might be a little more familiar with the process than I am. But I had no idea how a painting like this, however beautiful it could be, could possibly take this long. So the result is incredible, but. Is there anything you can tell me about the process, the egg tempura, well, things like this? Not really. No, I'm not. Don't have enough, uh, uh, you know, art chops myself. But I do know that you know some of the old masters used this. This, you know, the, the egg protein mm-hmm. uh, was a way to just get vibrancy in your color that uh, had that there was no other way to get back in the old days. Yeah. And, and so you know there are some very famous works. Uh, that were done, you know, with this technique, and it, and it was painfully slow because, uh, because because you got to break a lot of eggs to make yeah yeah to make a painting. Well, and again, it just that just you know obviously you know he didn't create this technique, but even the use of egg and the idea of the egg as a symbol and as an emblem of this album, like there was birth in this album. Yeah, you know, he was okay. really really bringing something nice new into back, the world. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but speaking of tiebacks, you know, we talked about Santana's Abraxas at length and the Nigerian charm dancer that we first met when discussing that album cover reappears here. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at her right now. Uh, she's got white makeup this time. Uh, but it's definitely her. It's It's the very same person. Certainly her. So, you know, it got me thinking this has to be the only example of a character reappearing on two separate artists' album covers. You know, I did some digging. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, pre-existing characters that were used on different bands' albums. You know, Queen has used covers, or has had covers that have Marvel Marvel figures from the comics, and lots of people have done things like that, but... An artist doing it is just a wild move for me. I, I don't know. I, I, it would seem to me, and I have no background at all, uh, just uh, two cents in an opinion, and, yeah. and that is that I would think it's probably been done many times and we've never noticed it. It's sort of that little, you know, this is my little trademark. Yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going to put this little Bugs Bunny over here in the corner and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it'll appear on every album I got. But if you said, okay... Uh, Show me one. I can't. So, I know. So I, I can't say that you're wrong. I just I just would say I'm, I'd really be surprised if if this was the first time that we had a recurring character from, you know, carried over from one album cover to another. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, and it was quite an interesting time. I would always, you know, like to know as well. And if, if it did, I'm sure it was intentional. Very oh, 100%. Intentional 
because of the the role that this uh, uh, this image takes in the album cover. So mm-hmm. I, I I'd love a chance to ask, what's that about? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, to to the, never to happen. But I do think that you know having a figure like that so central really it pulls your eye. Yeah, it certainly pulls your eye. And this this album cover is brilliant. I'm not sure where it stands for me next to Abraxas. Not that they're sister albums, but <laughs> I would like to know what Carlos and Miles thought of each other's uh, albums, if not just the artwork. Yeah, so it'd be yeah, interesting to yeah, know. That would be. But considering you know how adventurous Miles was really becoming, and you know that fusing of jazz and rock and psychedelia and funk, you know it wasn't done before. Right. You know, it really wasn't. So I yeah. think he'd be pretty adventurous and Santana wouldn't be too far an adventure. But, you know, I have also no idea how this cover ever could have been interpreted as racially charged. I know I wasn't um, around in the early 70s, but it feels more like a celebration of culture. And that's where part of the racial <sighs> charge comes from, because, yeah. you know, America in the 1950s and 1960s, was not a happy place no. when it when it came to race. I was looking back '63, the Birmingham church um, bombing, and '64, Mississippi burning, murders, and uh, Malcolm X in '65, and MLK in '68, and then you know at the same time we we've, we've got the the country trying to right the ship a little bit with the Civil Rights Act in '64, Voting Rights Act '65. Here's your history lesson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether you whether you like the Fair Housing Act. 68. I mean, the point being that, that, you know, on the one hand, we had a lot of hatred being exhibited in yeah. our bad behavior, and there were these efforts to correct it, and and there were a lot of people who weren't happy with, uh, you know, with the Civil Rights Act. Or yeah. The oh, Rights yeah. Act. Oh, 100%. And so all you had to do was show a black person in a positive light, and you got more enemies than you're ever going to be able to count. It's true. Unapologetically black and adventurous, and especially in a genre steeped in tradition. Yeah. You know, he dared move away from it in much the same way Coltrane did. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Thanks for, uh, for framing that a little <laughs> better for, uh, for the young in here. But Davis was obviously thrilled with the painting. That's no surprise. Yeah. Um, you know, again, so, so forward thinking, which is sort of verboten in the jazz world. But it really paid off. I think the font is incredible. Um, and, you know, it was a message to the world that jazz could hold its own amongst any other genre yeah. in terms of cool and in terms of capturing the zeitgeist. Yeah, and I'm proud of you for noticing fonts, paying attention to fonts. Hey, of course. I, I love fonts, man, especially <laughs> the uh, the gothic ones. That's more my vibe. So uh, I just wish Davis would have been able to find this original artwork. It's a yeah. bummer he didn't end up with it hanging on his wall. And everyone else loved it, too. That's so, right. What more do you need to know? Bitches brew. Bitches brew. Drink up. See you, See you next, next time. time.